This is Talkin' Mule Deer with your hosts, Steve Belinda and Jody Stemmler. Talkin' Mule Deer takes you on a journey to learn more about the Mule Deer Foundation, Mule Deer and Blacktail Deer Biology and Management, tips and tactics for hunting, conservation issues, and even features some of our corporate and celebrity partners. Now, let's start talking Mule Deer. Hey, this is Jody Stemmler. And I'm Steve Belinda, and welcome back to Talkin' Mule Deer. Uh, today, we're going to be talking to our president and CEO of the Mule Deer Foundation, Miles Moretti. And it's a sombering time for America right now because we're in the middle of the COVID-19 situation. Welcome, Miles. Hey, it's good to be here. Uh, so, Miles, um, what's going on with the Mule Deer Foundation during COVID-19? I mean, uh, give us an update of where the organization's at. Well, we're like everyone else. We're uh, our offices are are shuttered right now, and everybody uh, from our headquarters to our field staff is working out of their homes remotely. So we're all learning how to do business a little bit differently. But a uh, good thing is everybody's well. Everybody's uh, doing really well. Um, starting to go a little stir crazy, but we have been aren't we as all? busy as ever. <laughs> Yeah, and for some of us, you know, working from home is is standard practice, but I imagine Miles that it's been a whole big learning curve for you and a lot of the other folks that that are used to working in the office. It's it's glad to hear that we're still being productive. So, um we are respecting the COVID-19 stay-at-home orders and the travel restrictions. Um so so what are we doing Miles to make up for the uh, the lost event and the uh the slowdown right now? Yeah, these stay-at-home orders came right in the middle of banquet season for MDF, didn't they? Yeah, we only had like four or five events before the shutdown order came. And so we had to scramble to to uh, reschedule uh, all our banquets events. And so right now, almost 100% of the banquets have been rescheduled for June, July, August, September. Uh, hopefully we don't go that far, but we thought we would go out there. Our volunteers have been great, our local chapters. At, at rescheduling these these events. One of the things interesting that we're running into is all the other conservation groups that do banquets this time of year are rescheduling their events. And so sometimes we're having a hard time finding the venue uh, that we normally have because most of us uh, conservation groups stratify our, our banquets so that we're not on top of each other. But it's been kind of interesting because we're just all scrambling to rebook. But but stay tuned. We'll have lots of information out, uh, letting people know when, when your local banquet has been rescheduled. And where will they be able to find the information about the rescheduled banquet? Uh, the best place to find information about your banquets is on our muledeer.org website. Uh, go to your state chapter. Uh, also, the second is every one of our state chapters has a Facebook page for look, look for Mule Deer Foundation Wyoming or or Mule Deer Foundation Montana on Facebook. And, and we're trying to keep fresh information on those pages. Right. And if they have any questions also, they could look on the muledeer.org website in their state and find uh, the regional director there and, and reach out to that person as well if they don't know who that is, right? Right. We have, we have a link there that shows each state. And when you click on that state, it takes you to that page and it'll give you the local RD. And sometimes it'll give, most times it gives you the state volunteer chair. Um, so that you can, and then also we're trying to post new, fresh updates uh, all the time on that site. So, Miles, are you still seeing uh, enthusiasm for our volunteers to continue to holding events, or are we losing some of that with everything that that 
COVID nineteen's thrown at us? You know, we have been I we have been amazed at how positive our volunteers have been. They love banquets. They love putting their banquet on. They're proud of those banquets. And so right now, rescheduling them in June, July, and August, they're all for that. They've been 100% behind it. Now, if we delay more into the fall, then the, you know I think some of the enthusiasm may, may go away as people want to hunt. And we're worried about you know when this is all over, everybody's going to want to go on a big vacation uh, to get out of the house. And so but right now, enthusiasm is, is incredible, and, and I'm really proud of our volunteers. That's outstanding. And this, you know, it's, it's, this is a challenge a little bit for the organization, is it not? Because, uh, you know, it, MDF uses a lot of operational funding that comes from this banquet process. Um, I know there's a number of different things that, that are going on, um, both on social media and, other, and online, including auctions and uh, Ultimate Raffle. Can you tell us a little bit more about that so that we can find if there's people that want to help out the Mule Deer Foundation during this time? Sure. One of the things we've had to do is is do business differently. So with a majority of our funding uh, for operations comes from our banquet season and funding for our projects. So we have we have right now at this point lost a pretty significant uh, part of our income. So what we're having to do is is be innovative and expand on some of the online type things. And we've done several programs. And if you again go to muledeer.org, there's there's uh, places on there you can uh, you can donate. You can renew your membership. Uh, the ultimate giveaway, which we run every year, is bigger and better than ever. Go go to our website and click on that button, and you're going to find some incredible uh, prizes that we'll be drawing in August. Um, we also have uh, Conservation Continues. It's a program where we've created a video asking people to continue to work with us, and we've gone out and, and found sponsors, uh, Reed's, Henry's Repeating Rifles, Phonescope, uh, Pyroputty, they have all stepped up and said, every dollar you raise, we will match. And so uh, the last I looked at that this morning, I think we're up to about $5,000 that have come in and then matching money. So we're really excited about that. That's kind of a new thing for us. But also we're continuing to do gun broker, uh, gun, pistol and rifle auctions. And you can go to gunbroker.com and, and you can find our auction and and you can bid on some great uh, MDF uh, logo firearms and then just some regular firearms. So having to do a lot of different things in, a, in, in this environment, our local chapters are doing local fundraisers. Some states allow you to do certain raffles, other states don't. So we're having to navigate through that. But a lot of exciting things going on. If it, so just go to our website, go to our Facebook pages, our social media pages, and see what what events that we have going. We're trying to do some virtual banquets, virtual gunapaloozas. Um, so it's all new and exciting. Yeah, it's sort of learning as we go. And Miles, a couple things that uh, you mentioned are really important is the challenge match out by those four companies out there is extremely important because that means for every dollar that you donate at this point in time, it's going to be matched. So if you don't donate ten dollars, that means your your effective donation is going to be twenty. And I know that that's, uh, you know, those companies have gone out and really have supported us. So it's important that we do maximize and, and use up all of that match that's been pledged. Um, on your online hunting actions, uh, that's where we're selling those 
uh, tags that we usually reserve for uh, events like the hunting expo and I guess not the hunting expo because we had that this year, but that's where we usually have sold uh, those tags in Utah where uh, you get an opportunity to bid on a, a pretty high quality hunt. Is that correct? Yes, we, we, uh, you know, normally we, we auction um, a lot of tags at our local banquets, mostly here in Utah. Um, we did have our San Jose banquet that had five tags um, two from Wyoming, two from Utah, and one from California. So we've had to put those, uh, go to the online auctions.com and have, have those do uh, like a seven day auction. And we've done it in three sessions. We've already done session one, which was extremely successful. We actually raised more money on the online auction than we did last year at our banquets. And we're, uh, we've just completed, uh, session two, and and uh, again, we were we raised as much money as we did last year at local banquets, and and right now their session three is uh, up and running. And so go to onlinehuntingauctions.com, and you'll you'll find some incredible hunts, and uh, and it's kind of fun to watch that as as uh, people bid on those tags. But it it's had us do business much different. Right, and then on the Gunbroker site, that's gunbroker.com, what folks can bid on is that MDF branded merchandise that usually would be available at their local events, correct? Right, right. We have several logoed uh, firearms that normally were things like banquet rifles and some other uh, logoed. We've got some Kimber pistols that have the M MDF logo in the stock, but we're also putting some... Uh, other just generic rifles and, and pistols that we have in stock that we usually ship to our local banquets. So trying to trying to continue the fundraising as much as we can. Um, it, I'm, I'm watching, you know, groups across the country. And probably if you belong to many groups, you're getting bombarded by these online auctions because really uh, we're all in the same boat. We're all trying to raise funds during this difficult time. Yeah, there, there's two other things I'd like to let our listeners know that they can do. Uh, the first one is if you buy stuff from Amazon, you can go on to Amazon Smile and designate the Mule Deer Foundation as your charity. And then 0.5% of all your purchases, uh, that money, the uh, Amazon Smile Foundation then writes a, a check to the organization on behalf of your purchase. Um, I know I use that uh, and for as much business as I do, uh, you know, uh, quite a bit of money gets sent to MDF because of my online shopping. And then, you know, now is a really good time to uh, renew your membership, join, buy a membership for a brother, a sister, a son, a daughter, a mother, a father, a friend, uh, go out there and, you know, join one of the, join this organization that's doing great things for mule deer. Um, we in the nonprofit world uh, really are dependent upon uh, giving from individuals, grants, and other forms of income like we've been talking about. And, you know, like everyone else, our world has changed. And so when you join the MDF, you're going to get the magazine. You're going to get to be part of this organization that's doing uh, awesome things for Mule Deer. You, you know, the Amazon Smile is a, is a great program. I call it mailbox money uh, because you never <laughs> really know what's going to come in. It just depends on how much you've ordered Steve on, on Amazon and others. <laughs> and, and it, it's really a great program, but uh, it uh, it's kind of like getting a, a little bit of a Christmas present year round when those checks show up, but they really, you know, are really critical. And, 
And, you know, you brought up a good point. Forever, since I've the 14 years I've been with the with the Mule Deer Foundation, um, people tend to renew their membership at the bank, local banquets. We can send out notices and stuff, but people want to be get their uh, membership at their local banquet, support their local uh, chapter. And so during this time when we're not having local banquets, a lot of memberships are starting to run out because you renewed last year at your banquet. So, you know, what we do is encourage people to go on onto the org website and, and join, renew their membership. And, you know, we have some options that they can do multiple multiple year renewals, but, but you could really, really help out the Mule Deer Foundation by going on and, and either becoming a member for the first time or renewing your membership. It would really help us this year. And you know, that new life member jacket that uh, we've got from Cryptic is a pretty awesome jacket. So great jacket. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, the only thing is, is their sizing is, is weird. <laughs> uh, you know, I had to go up an extra size. So I'm sure, <laughs> is that I'm sure the sizing a, there, Miles? Uh, sure that's been the issue. not. The, I, that's probably a COVID nineteen and pound situation there, Miles. So. Cryptic is active wear meant for the uh, fit athlete there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so, so that's the only that's the only problem I found with that jacket is your sight. <laughs> Well, we've talked to Butch a couple of times on this podcast. He's a great sponsor, great supporter, and we're really proud to have his jacket now to be the life member jacket. I think one of the things uh, regarding COVID-19 and the coronavirus that it's also important to talk about is um, responsible recreation. Uh, spring is a time when all of us are trying to get out and shed hunt or get out hiking. And, and now even more than ever, if you are uh, in a stay-at-home order, you kind of want to have your recreation opportunities but there are things that you need to keep in mind. Is that right, Miles? I mean, are there are there things that that we should be talking about members who are trying to get out on on public lands um, to keep in mind? I know a lot of states have have closed non-resident hunting for spring turkey and things like that. Um, seems to me that that you know getting out is good and healthy if once you're out in into the hinterlands where nobody's around you. But there's a lot of points along the way if you're traveling that that could be problematic. So responsible recreation is recreating close to home where possible, um, avoiding other people at trailheads and, and things like that. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. One of the, one of the first things that we saw when, when things shut down in, in March and, you know, it was right near uh, spring break for a lot of people. And so a lot of people kind of, you know, we didn't really know how serious to stay at home and distancing uh, were. And, I, and a lot of people headed to the hills, headed, out in the to you know still a lot of snow in the mountains that time but but you know they headed to the desert and they kind of overwhelmed those local communities that were trying to shut down and uh the national parks and state parks and and just being out and about on things like winter range so you know that kind of all kind of backed off some when they started closing the parks down and stuff and a lot of people were were mad but but, you know, we kind of overwhelmed the the outdoors there for a little while. And so I think, you know, now the things have settled down. Uh, people are, are taking, you know, things more seriously, understanding um, that they they can't just head to the outdoors like like a bunch of other people, because pretty soon you got more people in the outdoors than you do in the city. And so, uh, you know, that's taken it's a learning curve for everybody. But, you know, I, I do want to give a shout out that, that, hey, be careful out there. These animals are still in a stressed time. We're having a pretty wet, 
uh, cold spring. And these animals have come through a long winter and their their reserves are low. So if you're out there, don't don't be getting on the winter ranges chasing deer or elk or other animals and, and be be respectful of, of these animals out there because this is really a vulnerable time of year for them. Yeah, we often say it's, you know, uh, animals die in May because of the fat reserves that they've lost throughout the winter. And, um, you know, here in Montana today, we're getting another uh, one of our spring snowstorms. And, you know, it's uh, going to ha- be this way for a couple more weeks. Uh, important time to not put any additional stress and allow those fat reserves to be used. Uh, those bones will still be there, you know, in a couple weeks. And I know that uh, the issue of, of antler hunting has become uh, big enough in some states that they've actually put a, a season on them and doesn't start till May 1st. So, you know, our listeners out there, you know, respect what uh, – what our, our leaders are telling us on recreation, on hunting, on crossing state lines, uh, be respectful to your other hunters, but more importantly, be respectful to the wildlife out there. Let's, let's give them a break. Let them, you know, get through, come out of this winter. And uh, then we can, you know, make sure that we've got healthy populations uh, for the future. That's right. Responsible recreation means both from the COVID-19 of of trying to not bring that into rural communities or to follow CDC guidelines, but it is also responsible recreation is being responsible for the wildlife um, and, and making sure we're not creating any undue stress at a time when they're already feeling the pinch. Yeah. And, you know, living in one of those small communities, I know it's, uh, you know, our, our economic drivers, folks coming to our community in this, in the both ski season and in the summertime. And it's not that we don't want folks to come here. What it is, is, is our healthcare system would be overwhelmed very, very quickly, a lot quicker than uh, in larger places in cities. And that's sort of the, the scary thing and the message that keeps getting driven home to us in our local in these small communities is it's not we're trying to restrict individual freedoms we're just trying to make sure we don't become overwhelmed and this thing becomes a much bigger issue in these smaller communities than it than it's going to be on its own well you know one of the things we're we're seeing around the country is is a lot of times COVID-19 is being brought into communities from people from outside the community that have been traveling or for or non-residents. And I, and one of the things that not a lot of people realize is a lot of these rural communities have very small hospitals, if even that even have a hospital, but they don't have the kind of, you know, gear and stuff. And so they really can overwhelm that local community uh, in, in a lot of different ways. And, and so, you know, and the impact of wildlife, you know, we just need to give them a break this year. Um, it, like I say, it's been a hard winter in a lot of places, and it's not over yet. Um, we've had freezing temperatures here in Salt Lake. We had um, yesterday. We had probably a dozen towns that had record low temperatures. We were 11 degrees yesterday morning here in Denver. So yeah. Zion National Park in southern Utah, which is normally in the 70s to 80s this time of year, was at 27 degrees yesterday. Oh, you know, and and I so you know, but I mean, it's great because there's moisture coming, and and we need that. But uh, yeah, it's 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 a tough time for everybody. Well, the other thing that's important and part of a responsible recreation is remember you still got to follow the laws, particularly bag limits and you know restrictions on the type of. Uh, fishing in particular that you can do out there. Just because a lot of folks aren't out there doesn't mean that you get 
free reign to go do whatever you want. You know, we have to set an example as sportsmen and, you know, uh, I would treat it as any other time there, the wardens are still out there. So you still could get caught, but it really falls back on to the personal responsibility. And, and, you know, we hope our listeners and MDF members set a good example um, on that aspect of, of getting outside. Well, and, and just on that note, um, the state wildlife agencies are, are making some um, COVID-19 related um, changes and regulations as well. Uh, and as I mentioned, I know my family always turkey hunts in Nebraska every spring and Nebraska is no longer allowing uh, the non-residents for this season. We, we, we couldn't get a tag and, and that's probably rightfully so to be able to travel into another small community. But um, the Council to Advance Hunting and Shooting Sports has a clickable map of the State Fish and Wildlife Agencies with its response to COVID-19. So Go, go on to that map. That's this at CAHSS.org. And you can click, click on and get the, the agency's response and any uh, changes that they may be having or recommendations that they have uh, for, for how to recreate responsibly um, in those states during this, this pandemic. Okay. I, saw the, I, I want saw, to change the topic. Oh, oh, right, right. I had, <laughs> COVID-19 I one... is doom and gloom, guys. Come on. Let's, let's talk some fun stuff, too. Yeah. So, Miles... Um... 2019 banner year. That's what I was going to do. We've said that a couple times in the last few years, which means you're doing better every year underneath your leadership. Uh, give us, give us a, the, the quick elevator speech on how, how good a year MDF had in 2019. Well, we MDF has been uh, around since 1988. And so 31 years and all going on 32. So, 2019 was our best year financially uh, and growth in chapters and growth in membership. And so we we just had an incredible year. Part of that was we had, you know, a record economy, uh, stock market was up, everything was going really good. So we came out of, and, and it's helping us as we go forward during this time, we came out financially in better uh, financial sh- condition than we we've ever been, and that that's really self gratifying from from you know knowing that our organization is doing so well. But you know the thing that that's created that is one of the things that we have that's a real positive. Is Your new director of conservation, of right? <laughs> well, you know, despite despite that new position. Uh, you know, we're, we're doing well, you know, we're doing well. So, uh, I, uh, so I couldn't, have, couldn't have been more pleased. Uh, our board of directors were pleased. And so, um, and what that, that, what that kind of translates into, we were going into 2020, uh, ready to, to rock and roll with habitat projects, uh, uh, muley projects, you name it. Uh, we were, we were really, um, looking forward to a lot of great things this year. So, so, but it still set us up to be in very, very good shape for this uh, unusual time we're going through. Yeah, I saw it last count miles. Um, we had over 154 chapters. There's probably been a couple since that uh, when I looked last. Um, that's been great. Membership growth. Expo was huge this year, 57,000 people. Uh, what's even more exciting for me, and you know, we joke about it uh, because I'm the new director of conservation that I mentioned for the organization, is the actual work we're getting done on the ground because of that money that's being gever- generated at the expo at the local events. And then, you know, our, our continued expanding relationships with the States 
in the federal agencies through grants and through collaborative agreements to get more and more done. I think our stewardship's up to what, 10 or 15 uh, individual project agreements in like nine states. You know, we've got some BLM grants going in three or four states. Uh, we've been working with the state uh, fish and game agencies on their migration corridors through our winter range and migration corridor initiative. We've been helping them, you know, get a better handle on on the planning and implementation in their states, including, you know, some upcoming uh, additional capacity and additional project work that we're going to be working with the, the state of Idaho on. Um, you know, we just keep, you know, my phone rings every week from a partner wanting to do business with us, wanting to come to us and help us or help them go out and do good things for mule deer and other wildlife. And I think that's reflective of everything you've talked about, Miles, uh, your, your leadership, the growth of the organization over the 14 years you've been our leader, and the really positive things we've been able to go out there and do. Um, what I tell staff, and you've heard me say it, is we try to maximize our impact for the resources that we put out on the ground and into an effort. That means that when we look at things, we're trying to ensure that we're getting the biggest return for our buck for mule deer. And because we're doing it for mule deer, that means sage grouse, elk, all these other species are gonna benefit, which ultimately leads to better hunting, better wildlife, better populations, better all around stewardship of our natural resources. Well, and you're, you're right, Steve, and, and that's, you know, an amazing, the growth in those areas. Um, in, the, in one of the stimulus packages, I think it was stimulus uh, number two or three uh, that was passed, was some additional funding to get uh, more work on, uh, on the national forests to, uh, you know, try to create more local jobs through uh, uh, going in and doing projects on the national forest to create healthy forests. Because a lot of our forest areas have been neglected. Um, a leader in that is California with all the fires they've had. They've put a lot of state money into it. So we're, you know, a lot of positive things like that happening. And, uh, you know, the Migration Corridor Initiative continues to grow and continues to to gain momentum. And, and we just, you know, we're, we haven't slowed down uh, in, in the planning process. Now, you know, actually the one you know, while we're all at home right now, this, and we really don't do a lot of field work this early in the year. Normally it starts a little bit later in the spring and, uh, it's, but this year it may be pushed in later summer and fall, but, but, uh, you know, the planning and, and, uh, work is, is not slowing down. It's considered essential. So we'll see, you'll see projects gearing up here as soon as we can get out in the field. Yeah, we've also been pretty active in the past year, Miles, on the policy front. I know a couple of the issues that, that you and I worked really hard on with, with our partners is, you know, getting uh, streamlining some bureaucracy so we can get projects done quicker, uh, you know, expanding hunting access on national wildlife refuges. You know, give us a rundown of what's happened in that realm. Well, you know, that's one of the things that uh, kind of the unseen thing that people don't really see that we do here at MDF, and, and that's the 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 conservation policy, government policy, working with the state agencies and the federal agencies. You know, we've been able to get legislation passed uh, for uh, to expedite work on pinion juniper removal for mule deer and sage grouse. Uh, we've also um, worked on getting more funding for healthy forests. 
and just just a whole bunch of uh, you know being involved in the hunting and shooting sports council and making recommendations to the secretary of interior and secretary of of agriculture um, things like the migration corridors uh, increased funding for uh, CWD research and monitoring I mean the list goes on and on uh, opening up uh, some of the you know the refuges for more hunter and fishing access and keeping public lands open for hunting and fishing. That just came out um, just this past week, right? The Department right. of Interior Secretary Bernhard announced that uh, another, was it 2.3 million acres of, of refuges would be available for hunting and fishing. And some of these are just expansions of existing hunting and fishing programs. So adding a new species or opening some new acres. But in a couple of cases, these are brand new refuges available for hunting, including, what is it, uh, Bamford National Wildlife Refuge in, in Bamforth, excuse me, near uh, Wyoming, uh, near Laramie, Wyoming. That's one which will allow mule deer hunting, big game hunting for the first time. So so this is kind of a big deal, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you know, and this is like about the third increase in this. So um, I haven't totaled up, but it they've got to be somewhere close it's to, close to four, four million four acres. Five, yeah, yeah, four million acres of, of, of refuge. You know, I, I don't want to say anything bad about our partners, but, but for a lot of years, the Fish and Wildlife Service believed these refuges were even though they were paid for by sportsmen and, and you know dollars, whether hunting or fishing, they 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 felt like they needed to be much more restrictive, uh, shut them down, and so you know the one thing about uh, when Secretary Zinke and now Secretary Bernhardt, they they've taken the philosophy that hey these were paid for a lot in part by sportsmen's dollars. They need to be available for sportsmen's recreation, and so um, I you know I I can't tell you how much that means you know to see these areas. Um, and they're and they're not being impacted. You know, the wildlife is still there. Uh, there's still controls on the refuge. It's not, you know, just open wide open. It's you know, there's still some um, limitations about these areas. It's not quite like BLM land or the forest land, but but it's sure good to see this opening this up and, and more access because in a lot of areas, you know, we're we're spoiled in the West here with so much public land. But the Midwest and the East and South, where it's a lot of private land. These, these refuges are some of the only public land available to hunters and fishermen. Well, and what you said, Miles, is pretty important is, is they just didn't do it carte blanche. They actually had a team, including the refuge staff, that looked at whether hunting would be compatible with the intent of the refuge. And if it was, they went and moved forward to open it up for the types of hunting that would be compatible. They didn't just throw a blanket over everything. And say it's all open. They they went through a process. They went through an evaluation. And you know what it came down to is is just as you said, there are types of hunting in places uh, that are compatible with the intent of the refuge and not, you know, aren't going to have an impact on populations or habitats. Yeah, you might take animals, but you're not going to stop that refuge from functioning for its intent. Well, and it's important to note that because um, in some of those refuges, obviously, um, some of them are, you know, waterfowl protection areas or, or other areas. Those are not changing. There's still going to be rest areas. There's still going to be places that the animals have a break. This is just taking that very scientific look at where does it make sense? Where where can we add opportunity in these places um, where, where we have good wildlife populations and have sustainable regulated harvests? You know, the other thing that, that they've also done with opening access is they've tried to streamline the regulations 
um, a lot of the refuge had much more restrictive regulations than the than the state wildlife agencies uh, were doing out on the uh, public land or uh, private land surrounding the refuge. And so there was a lot of confusion. You know, uh, season dates were maybe shorter. Um, type of ammunition, type of, uh, you know, um, how number of shells you could carry, different things like that, uh, that were just really, really restrictive to the hunter and, and putting up barriers to, to people hunting on the refuges. So, so that, a lot of that has been cleaned up and, and I, you know, we've got to give a lot of, a lot of credit to, to Secretary Bernhardt for continuing that program. And of course, he's been there since the beginning as, as the deputy director before. And, uh, I, I, you know, I think it's going to, in the next three to five years, um, sportsmen are going to be able to see some pretty amazing places that they've not really had access to before. Yeah, one of the things that they did recently, Miles, was to uh, have an online system where you could look at uh, landlocked public land and nominate or identify those parcels larger than a section in size, which is 640 acres a mile by a mile that we couldn't get to or that we had extremely limited access. And what they're going to do is they're going to look at those nominations and try to get the public access to the public lands. Yeah, that was that was part of the John D. Dingle Conservation Recreation Act that passed at the uh, very beginning of 2019 and, and MDF was involved in where it was is talking about sportsmen's access, recreational access to these these landlocked areas. And they were calling on the agencies to, to do a review and try to find that those places that they could make a difference for recreational access to these landlocked areas. Um, and it inclu included through the Land and Water Conservation Fund um, an allocation specifically for that recreational access. Um, so that, that's a big deal uh, to, to create this. They're, they're looking for these opportunities to um, not just allow more in areas that are already open and easily accessible, but to create access to places that may may be hindered by, well, for whatever reason, there's just not a road into it or it's private lands or, or whatever that might be. You know, what a lot of people don't understand if they're not from the West, if they're listening to this, is out here, we have a lot of checkerboarded uh, land that was, you know, part of when the railroad came through. But a lot of this is as we homesteaded the West and the public land stayed public. But a lot of these sections, uh, uh, you know, there's private sections within uh big blocks of public land, but on the reverse side, there's a lot of times when a lot of this country was settled, there was public land that was landlocked by private land, surrounded by private land, or, you know, the set, people settled in the valleys and that's where the private land was. And as you went to go to the mountain, to the forest, um, you know, you couldn't get to it. And, and I think this is really going to be another really important program that as we see, you know, it's going to take time because some of these issues, you know, this, this, land has been landlocked for over a hundred years and, and, and negotiating that and doing working through the process is going to be difficult, but it's really, again, paying, going to pay dividends in the future to open up a whole bunch more area that maybe only a select few people have been able to get to. Yeah. That, that situation with the, the checkerboard in, in Wyoming, uh, if that million acres there that they're going to look at, uh, to maybe purchase, it would be a game changer for future generations. Yeah, ironically, Wyoming may own part may own part of Utah if they get that. 
some of that some of that land that they looked at actually extended it. I think it was mostly the mineral rights, but there was some of that land that was actually in Utah. And that's been quite a quite a conversation between Utah and Wyoming about another state buying some land. So we'll see where that goes. Yeah. Well, I think uh, I think part of the looking forward as far as a conservation policy, um, you know, clearly things are are in a very different place um, in Congress right now. Uh, we've had several stimulus packages go through, um, but they are working on some new ones. Um, also, in, right before the uh, the the COVID shutdowns started to occur, Senators Cory Gardner and Steve Daines uh, and a bunch of other folks introduced the Great American Outdoors Act, which would permanently fund the Land and Water Conservation Fund and provide funding for deferred maintenance in a variety of public lands, not just national parks, but also forest service lands, fish and wildlife service lands, things like that. Tremendous bipartisan support. The uh, president indicated that he would sign that bill um, if it got there. And then unfortunately, immediately after that, things shut down. However, there's talk that that and a few other things you were talking a little bit about some of the um, the essential services of, of doing some work, uh, some habitat related work on public lands as being shovel ready work type projects that might come in a stimulus package. We can't read tea leaves, but are these some of the things that we'll be following along as we as they start to move and Congress comes back in? Well, you know, uh, ironically, while we were at the North American, um, there was going to be an event. That's with the, the North American Wildlife and Natural Resources Conference, yeah, which actually happened that week that uh, most of things were getting shut down in, in that middle yeah. part of March, right? Yep. Yep. And we were going to we were going to have a flight to Denver from Omaha to uh, have a meeting with the president and Corey Gardner, Senator Gardner, and Senator Danes and other sportsmen's groups to kind of promote that and tout that, that, uh, you know, as it was going to go forward. And, and it literally, we were all making arrangements to go there and it got shut down because of the COVID-19. And that was a real disappointment because it was going to be a, you know, a kind of a neat event, uh, high profile event, uh, highlighting the land and water conservation fund, which is sorely needed to, to get permanently authorized and additional funding. So, um, permanently you know, funded, it is permanently or, authorized. That was the yeah, Dingle Act last yeah, year again, right? Yeah, this, funded, that was the problem, yeah. permanently funded at its $900 yeah. million level. Yep. But, you know, there's I, I hopefully, you know, there's a lot of things that are going to go into the next stimulus package. Uh, um, the president has talked about infrastructure. A lot of the congressional people are talking about infrastructure. And, you know, one of the things that we're telling people is really some needed infrastructure that we need are wildlife crossings over these freeways and highways. Um, you know, this migration corridor initiative has really opened our eyes to uh, – to pinpointing where these migration pinch points are crossing these major highways or whether there's fencing blocking major migrations. And so uh, hopefully there'll be some money allocated to that in the infrastructure bill. We already have some in the transportation bill, but it hasn't been passed. So uh, that, that could be a real bright spot for, for especially mule deer and elk and pronghorn um, because they're the ones really impacted by this. Yeah, for sure. And and that Secretarial Order 3362 and, and MDF's related migration corridors initiative. Um, but the states over the last two years have been getting funding and doing a, a significant amount of new research, um, you know, collaring more animals and then also using some new um new modeling technology to be able to really clearly map those routes and 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 highlighting where those 
overpasses or underpasses would make a difference um, where, where they are interrupting migration patterns or where there are significant wildlife vehicle uh, collisions going on. And so so the, the pairing up of that, the timing to have that new information and now potentially to get an influx of, of infrastructure related funding um, could be great timing to help uh, alleviate some of those issues in the transportation corridors. Yeah, Jody, and, and one of the things, you know, I lead that effort for MDF. And one of the things we're going to be really looking at is implementation of those uh, projects and needs through the state action plans. And then secondarily, um, we're looking at those herds that come up to a state line, cross a state line and go into another state. And one of, because of the way states are set up, oftentimes we are not able to get the conservation to flow freely across those state lines so that we manage the herd and the, the route as a whole rather than two parts. And so one of MDF's priorities for 2020 and beyond is going to help the states help the federal agencies, help the private landowners break down some of those administrative barriers and get that management across state lines on those herds that that do seem sometimes get left in the dust because they, they are managed by one or two or maybe two or two or more states. Yeah, I mean that that was a big deal when I was working with the State Wildlife Agency here in Utah. Um, you know, very seldom did did we think about those interstate herds. Um, you know, we if they were in Utah when it was hunting season, we hunted them. Uh, if they were in Wyoming or Idaho or Colorado, they hunted them. And there wasn't really a lot of coordination. And, and one of the things that this data has really shown is these animals are moving a lot further than we thought. I mean, you know, Wyoming's migration initiative and corridors are, you know, that that's kind of the outlier in distance. A lot of these are small migrations, but a lot of them are interstate and they're not they're not well managed together. And that's not a wrap on the states. It's just that when when you're a biologist over an area, you're you're kind of worried about your area and you know you don't really have the authority to go across states or sometimes the other biologists they're they're busy with their things but uh, it's really opened our eyes to how important those interstate uh, herds are right we uh, this referring to the Wyoming data I mean obviously they have kind of they, they were the the groundbreakers in some of the a way of an analyzing and, and modeling those those corridors but one of their uh, collared does we've talked about her before went from south you know the the red desert in Wyoming to all the way up through and into Idaho um, 250 miles uh, they've also tracked what the bags herd is that um, yeah the right yeah. name of that herd that goes yeah. from southern Wyoming and down into Colorado so again those are just examples and from a state that has already done a lot of their um, migration mapping, but uh, but there's so many more uh, situations just like that. So hopefully this will open up opportunities to, to conserve those herds and, and, and have a place for a group like Mule Deer Foundation to get involved in, and help out across those state lines. Well, I was just going to say, you know, and that's one of the things that uh, we've had trouble getting maybe some of the states to focus on some of these interstate herds because they're not in their state a certain part of the year. And so funding for them is like not been a priority. I mean, there's a, you know, a, a unit in southwest Wyoming that, you know, migrates into Idaho and, and Utah. But, you know, there's higher priorities for the state of Wyoming. And and, you know, that's we all have to make priorities and when we're deciding where to go. But that's a place where I can, you know, bring Wyoming and Utah together. We can bring some of our partners and uh, to the table and say, hey, we, we would like to 
bring some money to the table and raise the priority on this on this area because we think it's important. And so those are the kind of things that we can do uh, working with the state wildlife agencies. And we were planning a we were planning a mule deer summit that was going to bring together all the state fish and wildlife agencies that was supposed to happen in May. Um, we've had to postpone that, but we're looking to reschedule it for later in the summer again. And the idea of that was to talk about some of these issues, some of these interstate um, challenges that are facing and figure out how MDF and other organizations and partners could play a role in that process. That's still going to go forward as far as we we hope, um, depending on what goes on with, uh, you know, when once these restrictions start to get lifted. I think, Jody, what you've been talking about is all the reasons that folks need to be supporting us right now, not just during the shutdown, but, you know, year round, uh, year after year after year. And, you know, if you care about mule deer, if you care about hunting mule deer, if you care about stewardship of our our wildlife uh, in the West, you really need to be supporting your organizations. Um, that help do that. You know, we're one of many uh, mule deer are pretty, pretty unique species. Uh, we call them the icon of the West. There's nothing like a mule deer out there. And so we hope that you support us, but, but really it's one of those things that uh, it's so hard to tell folks everything we do. We touch a little bit for, you know, 30, 40 minutes on podcasts through our magazines and uh, banquets, but really it's an everyday 365, you know, long days, dedicated staff, great partners, you know, really pushing the envelope on mule deer uh, conservation. And a lot of that in the last 14 years has been because of Miles Moretti's leadership. And Miles, we want to thank you. Uh, 2020 is an exciting year, but it's also a sad year. Uh, Miles, you've decided to uh, ride off into the sunset and retire. Um you're leaving us with a great legacy and uh, what we want to know are what are some of your plans out there for retirement? It's going to buy him a boat. <laughs> no, I already, already have, have that, right? I, I have, <laughs> now you I get to a, get it out. I, I have a boat. I'm just, all the boat ramps are closed and around. So. <laughs> well, that's true too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. I, you know, one interesting thing is, is I always said I wanted to go out on top. So when I made my announcement to my board in, in December and then, uh, public announcement in January that I was going to leave October one, and that would be 14 years with the division with the MDF, and I had 30 years with the Division of Wildlife. So I've I've been doing this for a long time, and and I thought, okay, this is a great time to go. Everything's humming along, the economy's great, everything's great. We just, you know, and we had our best expo in in 14 years, and so, um, but then all of a sudden when COVID 19 hit, it was like, oh man, our people think I'm bailing out, but. You know, uh, but but the, but it's a, it was just time for me and Julie to to move on, and and the board is in the process of selecting a new president CEO that'll start September one. So, um, yeah, it's been it's been bittersweet, uh, especially with all the things going on this year, because this is not the way I wanted to leave the organization and leave. You know, having you know, this is really a crisis for everybody, not just MDF, but but you know, uh, you know how we survive through this is, is going to take some real, is taking some real challenges. So we keep hearing all these new normals and yeah. unprecedented, but it's true. Um, things are, are not going to be the same uh, after we move on and, and you moving on is, is, is going to be a challenge that MDF has to, to work through and, and will, um, but you will be missed. You have been quite a, quite a beacon in the conservation community and for us personally. Well, yeah, I'm going to, this is, you know, what I've always said is I'm going to miss the people and the relationships. You know, I've, 
as the young young people that uh, come in and come up and through through our organization or as I meet in these national meetings, I always tell them, I said, look, I said, one of the most rewarding things you're going to have is the relationships that you build uh, through your career. And then years later, you're in a, somewhere where one of those people that you helped mentor is in a leadership position or is in a position that, that you can work together. And, it, and it's really, that's really self-satisfying to, to run into those individuals or know those individuals. And so what I always tell people is, first of all, don't ever burn bridges and relationships because you never know where we're all going to land land in the future. And, and I think that philosophy is something that's helped me, uh, you know, be successful in, in guiding the, the Mule Deer Foundation through, you know, from when I came on 14 years ago to where we are today. And, and I'm, I'm confident that, that MDF is in a very good place. And despite COVID-19, it's going to be stronger than ever as we come out of this. And it may take all of us a little time to, to get back to where we were, but uh, I'm, I'm confident that we will. Well, Miles, we know you're not going to be a stranger, at least until the end of your tenure, uh, which is September 30th. We'll probably be talking to you multiple times here on our podcast, and we'll be uh, working with you out there fighting the fight for mule deer. Uh, I know you've got a couple grandkids. I know you want to spend more time in the field. Um, We wish you all the best in that realm. Uh, We thank you for everything you've done for us personally and for the organization and for wildlife. And, you know, they, the old saying is they're going to be big shoes to fill. And, and, you know, I think that can be, uh, you know, a, a symbol of doing a great job, you know, in the wrestling world, when you've, when you've wrestled your last match, you leave your shoes on the edge of the mat to simplify, you know, I'm done, I'm moving on. And so as you leave your hunting boots on the edge of the mat, um, we're pretty sure that, uh, we're going to try to keep the legacy and, and, you know, keep doing the great work that you fostered in all of us. And, you know, we wish you all the best. Uh, we wish you many, many sunsets with your lovely wife, your grandchildren, your children, and your friends doing the things that you haven't had time to do because you've been working so hard on behalf of wildlife. Yeah, something tells me it's actually really going to be his wingtips on the side of the mat <laughs> and the ones that he would wear in D.C. And the hunting boots are going to get a lot more use. That's my yeah. take. Yeah, I, I, I think so. And, and you know, uh, it's uh, interesting um, through this uh, this home, stay at home. Uh, uh, I tell Julie, I said, <laughs> Julie's saying, "Don't retire." <laughs> I know she. I can't she, stand she, having she you around. Day, she one day says, "Too late for you to go back and ask if you could work longer." <laughs> and so, you know, I, I, I see a foreshadowing of our of our retirement. But, uh, um, but you know, when we're both retired, she's gonna, you know, eventually uh, be done with her business, and uh, and so we're, you know. Right with all the things going on in the world, travel may not be a high on our priority, but but you know, getting out and spending time and and uh, together and doing some things that we have put off over the last few years is I'm looking forward to that. And you know, and I actually have five grandkids now because um, I have when Ashley got remarried, I got two step grandkids. So uh, so you know when so now I've got five kids to try to get in the outdoors and get them interested in, in, uh, you know, being out there and hunting and fishing and, and recreating in the outdoors. 
It's a good way to spend your time for sure. Well, Miles, thank you so much again for your leadership. Thank you for your time today for, for helping folks understand um, what they can do to help the Mule Deer Foundation. Again, it's muledeer.org to get more or the online hunting auctions.com where you can get in on a potentially on the hunt of a lifetime if you want to bid on those. That'll also help support the organization. We really appreciate you. Thank you for talking Mule Deer. Till the next time, this is Jody Stemler. And I'm Steve Belinda. And remember, conservation is continuing at the Mule Deer Foundation. Thank you for talking Mule Deer. Thanks for talking Mule Deer with Steve Belinda and Jody Stemmler. The Mule Deer Foundation is the only conservation group in North America dedicated to restoring, improving, and protecting mule deer and black-tailed deer and their habitat. MDF is a strong voice for hunters in access, wildlife management, and conservation policy issues. To find out more, visit www.muledeer.org and stay tuned for the next episode of Talkin' Mule Deer.